This is a Hot Pie Original. Did you ever imagine this? What is it, 10 years ago that this would have been happening? When you just took a flyer to go out there? Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's... uh, No, absolutely not. But it's been the most wealth... Uh, worthwhile uh, venture or journey or mission, cause, purpose that I could ever think or be part of. Justin Wren is a mixed martial artist, humanitarian worker, and founder of Fight for the Forgotten. In this conversation, we discuss Justin's amazing journey as an athlete and how he went from an unskilled wrestler to a national champion in a matter of a few years. Justin and I also discuss performing under pressure, the mentality of an elite fighter, and his work with the most enslaved and bullied people in the world, the Mbuti Pygmy people in the Democratic Republic of Congo. If you're looking for information and resources to improve your health, well-being, and performance, then sign up for my free high-performance newsletter. Just go to www.ericcorum.com and sign up now. This newsletter is my effort to bring zero-cost, high-performance resources and tools to anyone with the desire to improve. But now, it's time to lean in and learn from the best. So, Justin, thanks for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. This is great. As I've I've read your story, I've listened to your podcast on you know, Rogan and these different places and read most of your book, like one word just keeps coming up in my mind and that's the word compassion. Hmm. And, uh, I just want to know, like, where does that compassion come from for other people? And I think honestly, well, first, thank you for this opportunity to be on your show with your audience and to share my message. That's a lot about putting love and compassion in action. Mm-hmm. And three things I try to remind myself, like you're affirming my affirmations. I try to say every day, which is I'm compassionate, I'm ambitious and I'm resilient. And so for you to lead with that, like that's, that's spot on who I want to be mm-hmm. is compassionate. And so I think oftentimes in growing up, like you learn some of your biggest lessons and, and some of the, the biggest pain in my life um, has transferred into the most compassion for others in my life. And so, um, or the lives of others. And I guess I would say that compassion for me, you know, I'm a fighter and it's always been one thing to fight against people, but I've discovered so much more when I turned it around to fight for people. And so, um, like fighting against people was, was cool. Mm -hmm. I mean, that, you know, millions of people watched, other people fight guys and me on a reality TV show and in my UFC career. And, and that's cool. That's great. But, um, but fighting for people, I guess that's like up leveling. That's, 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 that's truly great. Another um, sense of purpose, another layer yeah, of conviction. Yeah, absolutely. Using, yeah. using your platform for a purpose instead of selfish, you know, like being self-seeking, Whenever you're going in there for a fight or a cage, like competition, you know, just for props and for a paycheck, like, I mean, that's, you, you got to put food on the table and provide for yourself, but man, like doing it for a purpose like that, all of a sudden, like that, that puts a fire in your belly or a fire in your bones. And when you're standing across that cage and you hear the, hear the door lock now, the last six fights, you know, fighting for a purpose and my platform using that for my nonprofit, man, 
Uh, a lot of guys, whenever they get in there to fight and that cage door locks, they get kind of shook, especially in the beginning, amateur mm. or their first few f- pro fights or their first fight on the big stage or in the UFC. I mean, that's they call that the the big show jitters, you know, and uh, for me, man, when that when that cage door locks, like I, I normally have a little bit of a grin and it's like I've got a reason to be in here. A lot of reasons. That is so countercultural. It really yeah. it is. It's a radical idea because in today's world, social media, it's about glorification of self. We we may say that we have this platform to serve others, but at the end of the day, like there is a little bit of selfishness about that, not in a negative way all the time, but what you're really doing is saying, I am literally getting in here to fight for you. And that mm. is radical love to me. Mm. Um I want to go back to what you just said sure. about getting a grin though. Yeah. So yeah. you you know, I supported elite world-class athletes. Right. Which is awesome. And one of the commonalities I've found, one of the best athletes I've ever worked with, her name's Veronica Campbell Brown, and she's won three gold medals wow. in, uh, in sprint events. She's an eight-time Olympic medalist. But when the lights were the brightest, hmm. and she was just this very, she's a very regal person, she would like get on the line and she would like literally rip your heart out. Mm-hmm. And then she would hug you. And, mm-hmm. you know, but like there was other people that like were super talented. And when they were under the brightest lights, they just when they would crumble or they, be paralyzed with fear or yeah. that performance anxiety. How did you get over that? Man, I don't know. I've, I've always had that. Oh, well, no, I haven't. Uh, the first year of wrestling, maybe in the first year, year and a half, I won one match by one point. And it's kind of because I fell on the guy. <laughs> he kind of slipped and, you know, but then whenever I had a, two Olympic gold medalists as my coaches that took me under their wing and they saw something in me that I didn't because mm-hmm. I grew up getting very heavily bullied. So when I'd step on the match, I would hesitate. I would telegraph everything I was going to do. So I would show what I was going to do before I did it. And then they could reverse it. Right. They would know it was coming. Um, and so um, I doubted myself. I didn't have a lot of self-confidence. But then all of a sudden you get two Olympic gold medalists in your corner and then you're training with them on a daily basis. They're your coaches, they're your training partners, and they make you start believing in yourself. Whenever it finally clicked, you know, I, I think, um, I think I, I have an advantage, not necessarily with strength, although normally I'm on the same or, or I'm stronger than the guys that, that I'm fighting or wrestling against. Never really felt overpowered, but there's a lot of guys that have a lot more experience, a lot more time on the mat. Um, they might have, uh, more stamina, whatever it is. I think, I think where I have the edge is the mental game because I've always been around these guys and put myself in these positions to learn from the best and the greatest that have been there, done that, that have been the champions before, had the game plans for victory, had to rise to the occasion and overcome adversity. And I would do visualization drills with them. Um, and I think there's a big difference between um, and you're making, I, I keep having this thought come up in my head. I won't, I won't share the guy's name, but there was a guy that I used to train with. I've trained with a lot of UFC world champions, um, hall of famers, the best of the best of the best, whether it was Olympic gold medalist in, in wrestling or, you know, the belt, um, guys that had four or five, six world championships in fighting. And there was one guy that used to train with us, um, who's an incredible coach and training partner. But whenever he would go against the best in the world, the top of their game in the training gym on sparring day, he would dominate. Mm. Yet not a lot of people know his name because on the lower ranks, he would dominate. But every time he got that time to shine, to step up, he 
he would kind of cave. He would kind of crumble under that pressure, those big lights. And so he never got that opportunity, even though he's beating current UFC champions, hmm. even though he's beating current Hall of Famers, or guys that were destined to be in the Hall of Fame. Whenever it was his time to shine, um, you could see him backstage. He was nervous. And then it was almost like he was slower in the fight. He had the self-doubt that would overtake. You can't anticipate. Right. And it, free, yeah. And everyone frozen. was like, what's going on? Like, is that the same blank? You know, his yeah. name, right? Is that, that's not the same guy we see in the training room. But I feel like with me and, and a lot of other athletes that, that really like you're talking about that one that would just shine Victoria. Was her name? Veronica. Veronica. Yeah. Yeah. I think when the, when that time comes to like rise, it's like, what are you going to do? Like, are you going to tuck your tail and run back or was this your opportunity to shine under those lights, dance under the lights? So stress was in. facilitating for you, not debilitating for you. Yes. Facilitating. I would use that energy. And that's what my coaches would say since I was 15 years old. Use this nervous energy. Use this to fuel you in there. Mm. You know, whenever it's going to make that other guy um, get a little more tired because he's got a little bit higher blood pressure or his, his blood's pumping a little bit harder. You know, let this fuel you. You know, what's um, interesting is you started wrestling. Was it 14 or 15? 15. Okay. 15 years old. Yeah. And as a coach, I'm looking at this and I'm like, how in the world did you become a national champion in a sport where people start like, you know, four, five, six, four, seven, five, six, yeah. seven years old, the skill acquisition time alone, just to understand the technical components, then to layer and create tactical awareness. Like how did you compress all of that time so that you could ascend the ladder so fast. I think it was a obviously a multifaceted approach, like anyone that's that's accomplished something great um, in sport. We're anywhere in life, right? Like mm -hmm. we were talking about that before we got on here. A lot of your listeners, like like it's been the same journey, same path. Um, it just looks a little different. Um, but for me, I had the best coaches in the world that would tell me uh, what I needed to do. And I would just put on that learner's cap and say, try to be a sponge, right? Teach me, show me. And they told me, you know, write down state champion, put it somewhere you could see it, put it on your, um, you know, your, your mirror, whenever you're brushing your teeth in the morning, uh, put it above your bed. So whenever you, whenever you wake up, you're brushing your teeth, you're thinking about it. Whenever you're going to sleep, you see that before you turn off the lights and that's what you're dreaming about. You know, you're debunking and the 10,000 hour rule right now. Right. Am I? Yeah. I mean, it's Great. not even, it's really not even true. Yeah. 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 But I you know, know what that. I'm talking about. But yeah, it's perfect practice at that, right? If you're doing 10,000 hours of crappy training, you're going to be, you're going right. to have crappy results. But if you have a thousand hours with Olympic gold medalists that have done it and they're That's making sure for me, a real blessing and benefit to my life, God bless me before I even knew him where like, uh, you know, here's the best of the best of the best on the mats. And even though you're going to be um, hesitating, not believing in yourself, they're going to give, share their belief in you and in themselves with you. And then they're also going to make sure you're not developing bad habits when you're learning. So I'm a beginner and I'm not having to go back as these kids that got away with stuff at six, seven, eight, 12 years old, junior high wrestling, they got away with some stuff that were bad habits but then is going to hurt them later in life. And they're going to have to try to untangle that web with good foundations and good basics and, and then building from there. And, uh, I got to learn from the best right away. And then they also, um, you know, they said, instead of, I'm going to slaughter the Bruce Lee quote, I should really know it, but instead of, uh, instead of training, you know, 
10,000 punches one time, yes. you know, you'd rather train one punch 10,000 times. And that's what they would be. You probably know. It, yeah. But, I trained a perfect one 10,000 times. Yeah. Yeah. So for me, my coaches were like, Hey, there's a bunch of, there's some wrestling out there. Even a guy named Ben Askren, they called him a uh, funky Ben Askren and he had that funk, mm. you know, and, and he could get away with some stuff. They're like, Hey, and, and, but he had a ton, he had an arsenal of a ton of different moves. You didn't know what he was going to pull out of his hat and, and, and trick you with. Right. But for me, they're like, instead of training a hundred moves, um, you know, 10 times each or a hundred times each, we're going to train one or two that it doesn't matter if the person across the gate or Matt from you knows exactly what you're going to do. You're going to go in there and you're going to do it. Anyways, what was the, what was the throw it. that you loved? Yeah, it was two. So two. it was a, 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 I'll actually share it this way. It was a visualization. It was them telling me, put a state champion above your bed, but I wrote national champion. Okay. And then I put, I clipped out of the old win magazines, which was wrestling international news. I cut out a lateral drop, which was the first move I really learned and owned. And so I basically went from this wrestler that won one match by one point accidentally so then I went into this and the coach was saying, you know, Kenny Monday, Olympic gold medalist, first African-American to ever win the Olympic gold in wrestling. And he's like, he's been my MMA coach now for 14 years, but he was my wrestling coach when I was 15 years old. So like for more than half my life, he's been my coach. I mean, he knows you. you. He knows me. Oh, I know dude, him. That's dangerous. It's, it's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Whenever, whenever he shows up, he doesn't have to be there the whole fight camp. He can show up the day before or the day of the fight. He knows when you're warming up, what's yeah. about to happen. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's and a, he sees that's a, a look in my eye and he, he, he's the best of the best. And he'll, it's so awesome because he really helped me whenever I first went on the mats. I'm, I'm a Texas wrestler from Dallas, Fort Worth, where we both grew up, uh, grew up. And then I go up to Oklahoma and I'm at the regional nationals. I'm against kids from Oklahoma, Nebraska, um, you know. Uh, Kansas, all guys that have been wrestling. Die hard wrestling country. Yeah, exactly. And I go up there and I just decide to do this lateral drop. And I just go out there and try. And they're like, go out there and just try. Stop hesitating. Just believe in yourself. Just do it. Just go. And you will be able to walk off this mat with your head held high if you tried. Instead of going out there, showing them what you're going to do, and then getting pinned, reversed, and not believing in it. So I just went out there and I hit the lateral drop stuck a guy, pinned him, went out there, did it again, stuck, threw him to his back, pinned him, did it again until we're in the finals and then did it again. And so I literally went from losing every match uh, to then I also winning And that's humiliating for an opponent, especially when they know it's coming. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they didn't know it was coming then. This is kind of yeah. my like okay, coming, out, coming party out party where I was like, Hey, <laughs> here I am. I'm showing up and I'm pinning everybody and no one knew who I was. There you go. They knew who my coaches were. They didn't know who I was. Um, but to kind of fast forward, um, I wrote national champion, put the lateral drop, a picture of a lateral drop that I clipped out of a magazine on the left. Then there was a belly to back suplex, which actually I got in my last fight and how I won. Um, but I cut that out and put the move on the right of national champion. So every night I'm going to sleep national champion. Here's a lateral drop on the left. Here's a suplex on the right. Belly to back suplex is the actual terminology, but uh, my first national championship in wrestling, I won with the move on the left. It was a lateral drop. My second national championship I won was with the move on the right. It was a belly to back suplex. There's like power and visualization, seeing it, believing it, um, and then just drilling it. Drillers make killers, you know, mm -hmm. just repetition over, over, over and believing in it, you know, not, not, not complicating it. 
not throwing too much out there, but like literally perfecting or just owning this move. I, the guys I fight now, they know if I get an underhook, they're in trouble. Yeah. Um, and if I get two underhooks, they're, they're, they're really, really in trouble. Like no one wants me to get two underhooks underneath them because they know I'm probably most likely going to get a takedown. And whenever I get it there, hundred percent of the time I finish the fight. Um, I, I get it to the mat and then once we're on the mat, it's either submission or, what's um, your favorite submission? Uh, well, it's an arm triangle. A lot of okay. times fighters are yeah, head and arm, yeah, oh, like head and arm. That arm it's gets caught over your head. And you're like, yeah. Oh no. <laughs> oh yeah. You're a jujitsu guy. That's <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. So I have a sneaky arm triangle that okay. I do that. Can that, you show me later? I can show you later. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's sneaky. I normally go from side mount to north, south side mount, and then I'm already caught catching you. And uh-huh. I'll do a full 360 around Most you. Most people don't like going north, it. south. That's interesting. I, I like north, south yeah. a lot. All so right. We were, I was training that a couple of days ago and I was like, how are you finishing it so quick? You know, it's from a takedown into north, south. So um, normally my takedowns, I'm not getting into a half guard or guard. Normally I'm always getting into side mount or north, south, and then I'll finish on the other side if needed. Uh, to settle in. So I'm going to have to get video you to show my wife of getting sure. head and arm triangled by you. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> She'll love it. It'll be good. Yeah. So I like that a lot, but I, I take what you give me, you know, pos- position before submission. Mm-hmm. And then I'll in the MMA fight, you can really soften someone up with punches, elbows, which is great for a wrestler. But what I love about the sport of MMA is that it's a human chess match. And for me wrestling, whenever you get at the higher levels of wrestling, um, and then the rule changes that happened about 05, 06, 07, before the 08 Olympics, it changed heavyweight wrestling to being more of like mm, leaning towards sumo where like push outs, you know, you get a point for that. And so guys would have their elbows just tucked in real tight to try to not open up. And the hardest guy to wrestle is the one that doesn't want to wrestle you. And so it shut down a lot of the offense that a lot of American wrestling, our style was grinding in your face, hard nosed and just offense, Mm. offense over and over and over. And it made the sport more defensive. And for me, whenever it got into MMA, that was the chains were off. You know, this was going to open everybody up because there's punches, there's elbows, there's knees. I don't think people see, they see brutality. In MMA, they don't see this chess match that you're talking about. And it's like when I first started doing jujitsu, people were like, this is the ultimate thinking man's game. I'm like, really? And then I got on the mats and you're like, oh, my goodness. It's like I am literally you could both have your eyes closed and it's like move, counter, move, counter Mm -hmm. one inch here. Oh, I feel that. Now I'm doing this. I think I, I hope people can get even more appreciation for it. Yeah, because there's so much thinking that goes on. I hope so too. And I think it takes someone doing it. Like you can, if someone does get it, wow, that's like a chess match, you know, cause there are in Japan, the fans there for MMA, they're normally really quiet. They're not drinking a bunch of beer and yelling, rip his head off, you know, but <laughs> like, like a lot of uh, fans in, in MMA in the U S but there it's like quiet and they'll golf clap at, you know, like, uh, defenses <laughs> instead of, um, He's they understand it for yeah. the overhook. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> and it's, it's beautiful. I love it. Cause they're very educated fans, uh, but what I, I still think those educated fans would get a big education if they got on the mats and then all of a sudden they, it opens up a whole new world of understanding like, wow, 
my training partner, who's actually been in that chair that you're in, um, doing an interview with uh, my partner, Amy Edwards. Uh, he's the most accomplished American to ever do jiu-jitsu. 12 world medals, six world uh, championships, and he's the undefeated MMA world champion in Bellator. Rafael Lovato Jr., that man and his father are the first ever Americans to be uh, black belts, both father-son as Americans. And they are also like more privately, not publicly known, but they're like master chess players hmm. and they play Stratego at home. And these guys are, it, it's, it's demoralizing on the mats with them. Even me, two time national champion in wrestling. Like if you give them an inch, you're not getting that inch back. It's just once it's gone, it's gone. And then maybe, you know, they take two and you get one inch back all of a sudden they were giving you that inch back just so they could take another four or six mm-hmm. and, and set up a submission. They're constantly threatening two or three things at once. They're threatening the mount, but they're also threatening a choke or a submission or a Kimura. You know, they're always giving you two or three things to worry about. So it's almost like sensory overload, like, oh, no, where is he going to go? And you don't know, but they do. And they're threatening two things or three so that whenever you decide what you're actually going to defend, they'll take the other. Yeah. And so they're, they're literally thinking three, four, five moves ahead. It's linking those chains and that chain wrestling or those, um, you know, that flow of, of jujitsu, which is, is mastery. How have you taken this thought process of when they give you an inch to take it to your fight for the pygmies? That's actually a really good uh, question. And that's going to make me think for hopefully an original answer. Uh, (laughs) I, uh, I think for me, whenever I'm, Right now, we're doing a project, you know, for our nonprofit, Fight for the Friaten. We've gotten back over 3,000 acres of land for the Pygmy people in Congo and in Uganda. And just to show, like, what that is for me, my first goal and all I thought we could do was 30 acres of land. Wow. Now we've done over 3,000 acres of land, and our last purchase was another 48 acres, which doesn't seem like that much in 3,000, but the original goal was 30. And we just, our last purchase was 48 acres. And um, what's an acre cost? It depends. It, it really depends on where you are, yeah. how far off the beaten path. And right now just in Uganda, it's, I'm just interested. Um, it can be as low as $600, but it can be as high as three or $4,000 for an acre. Because in Uganda, where we're going, there's a national forest that they've been evicted from mm-hmm. and it's landlocked. So here's the rainforest that no one has access to except the Ugandan Wildlife Authority. Now here's uh, a mountain face that no one can really live on. Now here's the only actual land that people can live on and farm. And we're having to get some of that, but we're competing against the cacao farmers um, or the coffee farmers or the tea farmers. And so we're having to get out land that's going to provide sustenance farming, which isn't as profitable as the others. So the land costs more, but we're, we're getting really creative and, uh, we're building 38, uh, or sorry, 32 new homes, 38 new structures. We're going to have a, a, a pharmacy and a clinic for the first time for them, uh, which is great because the first kiddo that I was there and held and buried and dug his grave, it was horrendous. He was denied hospital treatment because he was part of the pygmy tribe. Can you, can you help um, educate our listeners about sure. why the pygmies would be denied care? They're looked down upon because they see them as less than human. They see them as property. They've been enslaved. We've thankfully seen 1,651 people transition out of slavery and into freedom. But if you just 
put a focus on Congo, there's 400 to 600,000 more Mabuti FA pygmies that are um, enslaved. So there's a lot more work That's to do. That's unbelievable. Yeah. And um, in Africa alone or in worldwide, 3.2 million children will die of dirty water that are under the age of five years old worldwide. So at not having access to clean water, there's anywhere from 750 to 1 billion people who don't have access to clean water. And whenever you have something like that in Africa, uh, you know, 74 million people in the Congo, on average, the person makes a dollar to a dollar 25 per day. Yet they're spending about 165 to $168 a year per household on treatment of waterborne disease. So now you're spending half of your annual oh, household it's a cycle income. Of poverty. Yeah. On treating the the symptom because you're not actually curing it. You're you're washing down the medication to treat, whether it's a amoeba or an intestinal parasite. And a lot of these you've had personally. I've had these too, yeah. yeah. But I've been able to drink it down, you know, the medication with clean water. Mm. Oftentimes they're spending money on this medication to treat the illness but not to cure it because they're washing it down with dirty water. So basically they're keeping themselves alive, but they're not actually getting well. Mm. Um, so they're continuing the cycle of that sickness. Um, and so Andy Bo, the little boy I held, um, he was denied hospital treatment because he was part of the pygmy tribe. Their average height's four foot six to four foot seven uh, for the men. Um, and they're looked down upon as uh property and slaves and or half monkey because they still live in the rainforest their homes their structures are twigs and leaves um so it's been generations and generations and hundreds of years of oppression and anthropologists call them the most oppressed people group on earth i would say that's the most bullied people group on earth mm. that's how i relate it you also grew up getting very heavily yeah bullied and so i knew what that felt like um, there obviously is much more extreme, but I think what you're saying is thinking moves ahead mm -hmm. was that I knew that if we loved one side and hated the other, or if we even just loved and practically helped one side, but we ignored and neglected the other, their neighbors, the oppressors, the oppressors, that's only going to come back to cause or create more harm or just uh, separation. Uh, uh, between the community and, and more, uh, perspective or belief that they're different. And, and, and what I've learned at least through the pygmy people is they see themselves as equal, which I love, even though the neighbors, oftentimes it takes education for that. Like we're all one. And I know we all have different skin colors and, and creeds and religions and beliefs and, and cultures and tribes and, and things like that. But truly for me, I just see it as like this world we're 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 one big neighborhood now, especially how connected we are. No like, question. like we're all under one sun, um, you know, one moon, one, one blue sky. Um, and for me, man, just, just God in my life, not to push anyone else. Like just, I'm supposed to put love and compassion in action. And the pygmy people adopted me in, you know, I went there to live. I lived with them for a year and they named me Efeosa. And so Efeosa means the man who loves us. And I treasure that name. That was the first name they gave me. How did you find out that that's what your name was? Well, they started calling me that actually before Andy Bo uh, passed. 
And uh, they had a ceremony and the chief adopted me in as elders. You know, they, they, they said that they wanted to name me this. And did you just uh, lose I it? Feel, so I cried actually. Yeah. I, 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 not actually, I really did yeah. like cry, cry. Cause my, my second trip there to live there for a month, like people were asking me, what are you doing? And why aren't you fighting? And you're on a winning streak. And why'd you walk away? And what are you going to do over there? And at the time, I'm like, I don't know. I couldn't promise land. I couldn't promise water. I couldn't promise food. All things they needed, wanted, desired. But they asked me, you know, they, the chief said, all of us call, everyone calls us the forest people, but we call ourselves the forgotten. We don't have a voice. Can you help us have one? And I knew just being an American, right? Having free speech, like I have a voice, but also being an athlete and having a platform, like I can use that platform to give them a voice. And then when they adopted me in and named me the big pygmy, like I was like, um, or the man who loves us and then Mabutimangbo. And so that means the big pygmy. I was like, man, I can change my name, the Viking. I look like a Viking, <laughs> yeah, but I can do. literally change it on social media and all these interviews and just call myself the big pygmy, which they call me. And people are going to go, why, why do they call you the big pygmy or what's Boom, that? Right there, you Boom, have a door. Here's, here's my opportunity to give them a voice. Here's my opportunity to make sure they're not forgotten. Um, and so on that, though, strategy-wise, thinking moves ahead. It's like, okay, we can give clean water to them. But if I'm a fighter, you know, what's a way to do damage? It's like, if I have the power, I'm going to go back and I'm going to take that water over. So it's like, well, okay, to negate that. What if we go and we provide water to the, their neighbors too, or even first and say, Hey, here's, here's an olive branch, you know, here's uh, an offering of peace. We want to be peacekeepers. We want to create peace among the culture and community. We want to bridge the gap, build a bridge between you and say, you're not different. We want to love both sides because the slave masters kids, I've been to five funerals of their children that died because they didn't have clean water. So going to them and sitting down as a community, not separately. Here's the pygmy people. Here's the non pygmy people or the Makpala. It's like, mm -hmm. let's come together and let's really dive into this problem. What's your biggest problem? Water. Why? Well, cause our wives can't go to work or our children can't go to school. Why? Cause they have to go collect clean water. Okay. Well, or, or just go collect dirty water. It's like, what else, what other problems happen? Well, we can't go to work as long cause we have to stay home from, school. We have to stay home from work because we're sick. Say, like, wow. So water really would change your life completely. If it was right outside of your, your hut, you're not having to walk six miles to it. You, know, you can send your wife to work or you can send your kids to school or both. Mm -hmm. Like that's game changing. That's life sa saving or life changing. And then it's like, oh, and what if you get to keep half of your, your yearly income because you're not having to spend it on on medicine. I mean, that, that right there was so how are you doing this. You building wells or what are you yeah, doing? Yeah. Digging wells, but also teaching the locals how to do it for themselves. So we've, I mean, in 10 years, we've been able to do 73 water wells. Now we did 73, 73, which is awesome, but we didn't start actually drilling the wells until three or four years in. And then we're, we're slower moving because we educate the locals how to do it for themselves. So we equip them with the school or the tools and then we educate them with the knowledge and say, you get to do this for yourself. And, um, how was that affected the relationship between the pygmies and the, um, sorry, what's the name again? The, sorry. we say the Makpala, the Makpala. because there's, there's over 200 tribes. And so yeah. instead of 
villainizing one of them. Mm-hmm. So let's just use a general term that, that everyone uses. And, um, has it changed their relationship? Yeah, They work side by side sometimes to get clean water for both of their families. Hmm. And so we've been working on this documentary and there's the pygmy people talking about how this changed everything, having clean water, but, but how they've been seen as equal and they're better respected and they have a seat at the table, um, during like ceremonies or celebrations and they're invited to it. Even the churches and the schools, like the kids are going to schools now because they're able to actually provide for themselves through not just clean water and having a job to do that. If we're employing them to drill those wells, but also having farms for the first time and being able to sell that at the market. And sometimes the pygmy people have the best bananas at the market or the best corn maize because we've had community development specialists, agriculturalists teaching them how to farm, planting the seeds a little nice. further so that the when the rainstorms come in the rainforest, it doesn't wash it away. Or plant the seeds a little farther apart to where if the seeds are too close, they actually kind of choke themselves out or they don't produce a full corn or cob of corn. It produces only half or a quarter. And those kind of look strange, but, you know, teaching them how to plant them a little further apart. Now they have better yield and better production than their neighbors or they used to have with their slave masters. It's like, but also let's not forget the slave masters who are farming wrong. Let's teach them. How do do you guys get rid of the slave master mentality though? I mean, like are the pygmies loving on them and they're starting to see this and like, I mean, cause eventually if you keep equipping them with tools, they're going to keep rising in social status. So yeah. How do you break that bond right there? I mean, it's been challenging, but it's also been surprisingly well accepted and, and welcomed because we've actually moved on from projects and villages where it's like, ooh, this seems like if we implement this here, it could backfire. Mm-hmm. So we're until there's buy-in on both sides and they take ownership of the project, meaning they're helping provide like whether it's monetarily, like they're helping pay for some of the tools and some of the equipment or they're, they got the sweat equity where they're helping us drill the wells or they're helping with corn and beans and rice, like cooking food for our well drillers or the village that's, that's contributing till they have that buy-in till they're saying they're setting a schedule of how they're going to clean the well and what times the well is going to be open. If, if, if they don't want it open at all times and who's going to keep eyeballs on it and the chief, the elders, the women, like all of them having buy-in, we, we, we really don't start working until they start working. When was the last time and you were back? It's been since before COVID, so that's been tough. But so I've who's been checking on them? Who's, who's our team leaders? So we all of the all of this is locally sourced and implemented. Okay. So we help fund fund it, but I, I've I've helped drill the first thirteen wells, but since then I haven't drilled a well. I've been there to celebrate. I've been there to make sure and monitor that every step of the way, you know, there's. There's soil samples from every meter that they've drilled, you know, like the porosity of the soil or permeability of the soil was correct and the recharge rate and uh, that that was good. And and but some of our well drillers, they are way better. I'm I'm probably a blue or purple belt in well drilling. But they're, <laughs> they're, they're black belts. I got um, you. So that's been what's been really cool is seeing people that grew up in a village that may or may not have gone to high school or primary school. Um, so I mean, secondary school and graduated. Um you know, see them become basically geohydrologists and, you know, have a job and build a team, have employees. Did you have ever imagine this? What is it? 10 years ago that this would have been happening when you just took a flyer to go out there? Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, no, 
Absolutely not. But it's been the most wealth, uh, worthwhile uh, venture or journey or mission, cause, purpose that I could ever think or be part of. You know, it's so been, what are your biggest needs right now? You know, uh, obviously, like the funding is what comes to mind first. And that's because we're a nonprofit. And to keep it going, there is some local buy in, but I mean, they're paying a tenth or less of what it actually costs. But, you know, we're, we're trying to grow our impact and we're also trying to do more stateside initiatives. But right now we're we're building five homes of the 32 homes. And then we have the other structures, which are latrines, so safe uh, toilets and hand-washing stations and um, the well tower. And so we've got a lot more structures to do. And Manny Pacquiao has given us uh, the be- one of the best boxers yeah. of all times, uh, who I believe it's okay to announce he is actually running for president in the Philippines. No way. Uh, yeah. So before... He is elected. He wants to be on the land with us in Uganda, meeting the Ugandan president with some well homes and wells that he helped fund. So, and he's just doing that out of the kindness of his heart. He's not wanting to get all this credit and things like that. But we asked him, you know, could we use this as a matching gift? Yeah. So that helps motivate other people to give, meaning if a person gives a dollar, you know, Manny's matching it with a dollar up to $50,000. So if we can raise 50000 Manny Pacquiao is going to match it with 50,000 and then that becomes a hundred thousand and that helps build a lot more homes. That's awesome. So where can people give to Uh, our website is our home base and that's fight for the forgotten.org. And so that me being a fighter and then them saying, you know, everyone else calls us the forest people, but we call ourselves the forgotten people. We bridge those together and it's the fight for the forgotten. So fight for the forgotten.org. If someone Googles my name, Justin Wren, I think it's probably the first thing that comes up fight for the forgotten. Um, you can find it on my social media from at the big pygmy, you know, that my links on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook is fight for the forgotten.org. I love it. Yeah. You, what you're doing and the compassion that you have for others, it's, it's what we need more of. You know, it's, we're in a country right now that's been that's been hurting. And uh, I think a lot of people can uh relate to this message and your mission. You know, Thank we you. need to fight for each other. Yeah. Like we need to go fight for these people, but we also need to fight for our neighbors. Yeah, for sure. We need to fight for those that feel forgotten. Yeah. And I think that you're going to continue to have a larger platform uh, because of this message and you're not perfect. No, I'm not perfect. We've all got our own demons and things that we battle. Yeah. But what I love about your message is is that you're putting others in front of yourself. Mm. And, uh, I appreciate that. And that's more of what we need right now is more selfless, kind, you know, non-reciprocating actions. Thank you, man. I, I am about to get with a guy named Tim Kennedy. I told you that earlier Mm -hmm. and he's a UFC fighter and I try to put others before me for sure. What I've started to learn is you got to fight for yourself and fight for others simultaneously like together. Um, And I used to think, well, I mean, here's kind of what Tim told me, you know, the, the most dangerous warriors, because he's an actual green beret served overseas has has had to kill people. And um, then, you know, getting in a cage fight's not much for him. Right. So one of the things he has said is that the warrior you fear the most isn't the one that hates 
you know, his opponent standing in front of him. It's the one that loves the people that are standing behind him. Mm. And so those are the people that, that you got to fear the most. Isn't someone that's fueled out of hate for the person in front of him. It's the person that's fueled for love, um, out of love for the people behind him. And so that's why I feel like the person with the most reasons usually wins, um, in competition. You know, they're, they're always raising the bar of, of what matters, you know, raising the bar for themselves of why this event, why this performance, why this job, um, why this has so much meaning, you know? And if you can, if you can raise that, I think that's what the highest performers do. Peak performers are always raising the bar of necessity of why I need to perform or why I need to get this done. What does it mean to be a high performer? What is high performance to you? You know, I think it's someone that just does their craft, their task, their thing with, with, with excellence, with mastery, with like purpose, someone that sees, you know, I, I, I see a lot of people on the mats and you, you do jujitsu. So we can just talk about that. And there's a lot of people on the mats that whenever it comes time to train, you know, it's, it's one thing to have fun with it and it's good to have fun. You need to have fun. But at the same time, if that's all, and you're not really taking a moment to take focus and to see every aspect for me, I go back to Raphael, the best to ever do jujitsu from America. He can see someone. He he knows whenever he's doing something, oh, I need to move this just an inch. You know, to have that precision, to be able to see it on someone else, ah, you know, you need you need to move just an inch a hair here, you know, an inch to the left and two inches forward. You do that, and that's gonna take his wind away. And to know that whenever I'm on top of someone or or he sees it in someone else, like he knows that precision pressure passing of like how to pass someone's guard, how pressure. to take their wind away at mm. that pressure, <laughs> that smash pass, you know, he perfected it. He made it famous. And, um, so he can see that, you know, if you spot it, you got it, you've been there before. And then to be able to translate that and tell someone else, I think that's what a leader does. Right. I think it's probably a John Maxwell quote where a true leader knows the way goes the way and then shows the way. Mm. Right. Um, and so being able to make sure that you're, that someone else, I think of a Buffalo in the storm, like, uh, for me, um, you know, be a Buffalo, not a bull, a bull runs away from a storm. He gets caught in it. He gets tired and he gets beaten down in it. And he also led, um, some of the other herd, um, some of the cows and the calves behind him to get beaten down in that storm for even longer. You know, they get caught in longer, but a Buffalo, a bison heads towards the storm calmly. And when that storm comes, tucks his head and he barrels through it. And even if it's snow, like he's like thunder through the snow. And I love that. And it's like knowing that, Hey, these storms are going to come, but like head, head through it. And then as you do that, like the bigger, stronger, wiser, the ones that have been there, done that they're kind of out in front and they're kind of creating like a path of least resistance through that storm for the people behind them. Mm. So for me, that's kind of what a high performer is, is someone that d- can do it themselves, but can also show, show someone else how to do it. What are you leaning into right now? Like learning about improving in your life to help you be, I mean, you're an elite performer, Thank you You know, in sport. And then, I, and I also, I would just say in life, I mean, you have another story that you can talk about if you want, but I mean, like we all have stuff. I, I say we all have our junk. Yeah. Right. But uh, for me personally, like, you know, we both have a relationship with God and that's really mm. important to us. And so that's like a redeeming thing. But like, 
What is it that you're leaning into right now to help you get better in something? Mm. I don't know if it's, you know, I know you've got a comeback coming. So maybe yeah. you're leaning into improving your training. Yeah. Maybe there's some books you're reading. Like, what is it you're leaning into right now to take you to that next level? You know, I would say that this year for me, I feel it's going to be a breakthrough year coming back to fighting, whether it's end of this year, 2021 or beginning of 2022. I'm creating a podcast. You know, we're both here at Hot Pie Media in Austin, Texas, and I want to create a podcast with them here. We're doing that, pursuing that. But my word for the year to do these things well, whether it's fighting um, or creating a podcast or completing this project and seeing it through in Uganda, my word personally is healing. I have to heal um, myself. That's just the word for the year. Last year was discipline. This year it's healing. Um, I have to continue on this path of healing to to complete those things and do those things well. Because if I'm not healed, then uh, you, you said we got problems. Like I'm a jacked up dude. Like I've had some real world problems. Like I've been to rehab. Um, I've uh, so for me, those three things are multifaceted. I've got to heal my, myself, right? For me, I got to allow God to heal me, my faith. Like, like I got to allow that space for the divine or source, like whatever greater power in the listeners are thinking about, like I have to allow God to heal me. Then I have to take time for me to heal myself, you know, create space in my schedule, not just to be running and gunning at all times, because you talk about it and part of these podcasts and you're social media platform is like how to prevent burnout. <laughs> Dude, when I burned out, that's how I ended up in rehab. It's because I burned out. I was just pouring out too much. And for me, I think we think of ourselves as reservoirs too much whenever we can really shift that and be rivers. You know, you, everyone always says you can't pour out what you don't have, right? You got to fill up before you pour out. That's a great principle. But for me, I feel like there's even another level up which is if you're just connected to source or connected to, to things, it's, I think of a river, right? I live by the Congo river, the most mighty, deepest, most powerful river in the world. But man, people can be that way too. Like let's switch from being reservoirs and let's become rivers. Let's stay connected to source, allow that love to flow in and that love can flow out. Mm -hmm. You do need to take time for yourself for healing. But then I think for me personally, like healed people heal people. And so let's, as we heal, others will heal around us. Or if we take time to heal others and give love, help, then that helps and gives love back to ourselves. And so basically those are the three things for me. It's like none of this other stuff's going to work if I'm, if I'm not healing on this healing path, if I'm not a student of life, if I'm not continually growing, right? So allow God to heal me, take time for me to heal me then take time to help others heal. Man, I love this. I'm getting Thanks. nurtured right now. A little cool, bit. I've, I've got some notes to take yeah. when we're done here today. But Justin, I just want to thank you for being here. Yeah. You, you, you got an amazing story, and I, I just challenge everybody: go out and get his book. Thank you. Listen to the podcasts, yeah. uh, and go support this group. They're doing something really special. I mean, you're fighting for people <clears throat> that have never had somebody fight for them, and then I don't know if there's anything more noble and more uh, selfless. So, uh, Justin, thank you for being here today. Thank you so much. Appreciate being able to be on this. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks for listening. You can find more episodes and all other Hot Pie Media originals baked fresh daily at our home on the web at hotpiemedia.com, the Hot Pie Media YouTube channel, or wherever you listen to podcasts.